I am my body. I am not my body. These two paradigms. I identify entirely with my body. The use of two separate words for I and body make no sense to me. Or, I'm entirely separate from my body. The superimposition of the psychological I and this material flesh is an accident. These two paradigms open quite different ranges of possibility when it comes to medicine or simply the way we respond to illness or even what we mean by medicine and by illness. Well, I guess I've been invited here today because I wrote a book about illness and about chronic pain, about the frustrations of finding no immediate cure, about the growing apprehension of a misfit between the way the doctors were considering my complaints and their reality, and then eventually a dim perception of the road I would have to follow if I was going to come out of my troubles or at least uh, to live with them a little better. Let me say right away that that book, a book called Teach Us to Sit Still, that book doesn't describe a turning away from official so-called medicine towards alternative so-called medicine, from one set of treatments and substances to another. And it certainly doesn't <coughs> record a turning towards religious experience or belief, um, or miraculous intervention. Opposed in other areas, it seems to me that there's a tacit alliance between Christianity and science here. Christianity largely underwrites the split between body and self or body and soul. The body and material embarrassment from which the soul will eventually be freed. A miracle, as we know, like a successful surgical operation, requires no effort on the part of the sufferer nor any identification between him or herself and the body. Only blind belief, whether in surgeon or healer. Well, my book does track then, I suppose, although this was certainly not a conscious intention at the beginning. What it does track is a paradigm shift from I am not my body to I am my body, from an uneasy and forced cohabitation, an unwilling tenant with a difficult landlord, to an acceptance, at first rather grudging and then a little more enthusiastic, of identity. My body and I are one, coextensive in space and time. What are the implications? If I'm not my body, I'm not my illness. It has nothing to do with me. It's a stroke of bad luck, perhaps something picked up in the tropics, the after effects of a virus, some deficiency in the genetic material which chance has assigned to me to get me through this life. At most, some bad habit of mine might have allowed some foreign body or evil process to get to work. The responses in this paradigm are familiar enough. Perhaps first a period of denial. There is, yes, a faint rattle from the front right drive shaft of my car, but I, the driver, do not need to take it to the mechanic immediately. It still gets me to work and back. The cost will be the same if I replace the drive shaft sometime in the future or if I replace it uh, now. So better wait for the future. 
Since this body is not me, I don't need to hurry to repair it. And second, the reluctant and often panicky decision to approach the doctor. These symptoms are growing worse. What if my body is seriously compromised? Although I am not my body, I appear to depend on it for my continued existence, at least in the only circumstances I know, this life. This is the mindset of the hypochondriac. Any defect in my body is a threat to the container of myself. The self is infinitely more important than my body, but ludicrously and quite inexplicably dependent upon it. Denial and hypochondria might seem mutually exclusive, but it's not impossible to swing from one to the other, and both depend on the paradigm, I am not my body. Once at the doctor's, when I've taken that decision, I can relax and leave things in his hands as I leave the car at the mechanics. In the waiting room, I work on my laptop, I make calls on my cell phone, I'm a busy guy, I have ambitions for myself, not for my body. I don't think about my symptoms while I wait for the doctor to examine me. I have other stuff to do. What do I want of my body then in this paradigm? That it look good, good enough, to give me access to the company and admiration of others? That it be respectable, as my parents always insisted, so as not to draw criticism. That it give me pleasure, that it spare me pain. It's an accessory. However, one way I could improve my self-esteem might be by showing that I don't fear pain and that I can push my body to the limit to promote the I who sits in the driving seat. So I can slim, denying my body food, I can run a marathon, forcing my body to make efforts it most definitely doesn't want to make. I don't let my body tell me what to do. I show my willpower by imposing on it. Or alternatively, I could just ignore it and grow obese. My body's not me. The paradigm that produces athletes of the Olympics is the same paradigm that produces the obesity of the guys watching the Olympics on TV. Actually, it's a little irritating that my body has forced me to the doctors, as if I'd lost control of it or were chickening out. When I get to the doctors, he reinforces my paradigm. He describes a mechanical problem due to the aging of my body. He draws a diagram for me made up of organs and connecting tubes. They appear to float in an empty space, completely separate system, not me. My face is nowhere on the sketch. He prospects a radical cut. A large hole will be blown through my prostate. The sphincter between the bladder and the urethra will be cut so that it is permanently open. My troubles will be gone. I ask him how this will help me with the pains I am having. I am in serious pain. I have bladder pains. I have pain in my perineum. I have pain in the, in, in the lower back, shooting pains down my leg dull pains in my abdomen. For long periods, I can't sit down. He says he doesn't understand these pains, only the frequent and unsatisfactory urination, which can only be due to an enlarged prostate. In the end, he doesn't seem interested in the symptoms that don't fit his picture. If the pain I have isn't correlated with verifiable organic damage, well, perhaps it's not that important. What is important is that he carry out this operation. 
How many people undergo this operation securing the knowledge that the body and self are separate and that the doctor is the expert where the body is concerned? How can it affect me if I have a large section of my prostate burned away if the sphincter to my bladder is set in the always open position? These things are not me. However, for the first time in that encounter, and very dimly, I became aware that future, perhaps incontinence, or retrograde ejaculation, as it's delightfully called, might indeed shift something in my ego. I might indeed become a different package. Over the coming months, I allowed my body to be subjected to a battery of tests. It's an object to be probed and photographed. I try to maintain my serene separation from my body as these tests, many of them painful, some of them humiliating, are performed. But this is becoming difficult. I am aware of depression. I am aware that I am hardly the same guy I was two or three years ago when all this began. I am aware that the medicines I am being given before the operation are altering my metabolism and mood. I am aware finally and thanks, I must say, here to the Italian habit of letting all patients see all their test results. I am finally aware that the medical results do not really bear out the diagnosis. My prostate is not enlarged. No other diagnosis or treatment is offered. After visits to four or five specialists, I decline the operation and cut loose. Where now? My body is not me but the doctor can't fix it. I have a car, but the mechanic doesn't know the make. There are no spare parts. In India, by chance, an Ayurvedic doctor says to me, Mr. Parks, only someone who believes body and mind are normally separate would use the word like psychosomatic. He also told me after only five minutes in my, in my company hearing my symptoms, then my situation would never be resolved until I considered the deep contradiction in my character. I wondered, I wondered if he was a reader of mine, but it turned out he had none of my number. From America, I find a book which suggests a psychological profile for the problems I have. Ambitious, overworked, tense, conflicted. I fit it perfectly. <laughs> I had earlier seen in a urology manual, uh, which was kindly shown to me by an Italian doctor, I live in Italy, I give you their version of this psychological profile. It has to be borne in mind that the chances of a complete recovery from chronic prostatitis, which is what they thought the problem was, are minimal, almost non-existent in fact. Prostatitis sufferers tend to be restless, worrisome, dissatisfied individuals who drag their miseries around from one doctor to the next <laughs> in search of a cure they will never find. The urologist must be careful not to let himself be demoralized by these people <laughs> and their intractable pathologies. In the end, after years, perhaps decades of pain and frustration, the vast majority of these patients will inevitably leave their problems on the operating table in their 50s or 60s. What was more kind about the American book was it listed all the symptoms I had, all the symptoms, including those that did not overlap with prostate problems. 
it's suggested as a cure, anal massage. It's to be delivered in California in a clinic. <laughs> and a procedure called paradoxical relaxation to, reserve muscle, to reverse muscle atrophy in the pelvic floor caused by years of mental tension. But most of all, most of all, the book suggested that the patient turn towards the pain and accept these pains as part of the main curriculum of his life. The main curriculum of my life. There's a metaphor, talking about metaphors this morning. Turn towards your illness. Paradoxical relaxation, which could take place in other places apart from California, fortunately, was a fancy word for lying on your back, eyes closed, and focusing your attention on sensations of tension in your body. And this was something that helped with a parallel task of eliminating or reducing language-driven thought in the mind. You were to do this for an hour at least every day. Well, I recall very clearly my surprise on reflecting that this was the first time I had ever closed my eyes and lain still, not to go to sleep or to think, but to pay attention to my body. And again, not to control my body in any way or force my will upon it, for this is the paradoxical side of paradoxical relaxation, but simply to find tension in the body and observe it. Don't try and relax it. Observe it. Keep the mind focused on the body in stillness. This then was the moment when this paradigm shift began, the shift towards I am my body. This is me. Because all of a sudden, I begin to discover a realm of being and sensation which my alert and, alas, incorrigibly verbal mind had constantly suppressed. What it is like being flesh. I read to you from what was perhaps my fourth or fifth sitting. There were curious pulsations in my wrist, perhaps. Not a regular wrist pulse of the kind that you can check and count. Rather, it might move along my right wrist from hand to forearm, then ripple over into the left, faster than an ordinary pulse, more fluid, more mobile. Everything was more fluid, more mobile than I had possibly imagined. Then this wave was picked up by a ticking in the stomach, then a leg, too. A sea swell of pulses were crisscrossing the muscles. The tension in my cheeks was exactly superimposed over the tension in my calves. The two seemed to be the same. Both were growing and glowing and noisy and changing. And suddenly it was all so interesting that the mind found it easy to concentrate. More interesting than thoughts. More interesting than language. As when you surrender yourself to strange music, it was so busy. Parts of the body were calling back and forth to each other with little rippling pulsations, as if the tide was lapping in and out across underwater weeds. Stop describing it. Concentrate. Suddenly, my belly drew a huge breath, absolutely unexpected, 
and a great warm wave flooded down my body from top to toe. I nearly drowned. Shocked and tense, I sat up and opened my eyes. My God, what was that? The feeling vanished at once. It was gone. But so too, as I realized now, was the pain. The pain had quite gone. Not even a shadow of pain. Not a ghost. I was lying still, painless. That lasted about two minutes. But it was a huge vision of possibility. About a year after this, a guy who did shatsu for me, because one of the things that happens when suddenly you realize that, that the body is an entirely different package than what one had learned about at school, um, you start doing things like trying shatsu, which if you haven't tried it, is one of the most pleasurable experiences you're likely to come across out, outside sex, I suppose. Um, this man encouraged me to go to a Vipassana meditation retreat, insisting that the paradoxical relaxation that at this point had more or less got me back into the world of the living, um, that Vipassana meditation was uh, a more intense form of the same thing. In this discipline then, in order to learn it, the disciple spends 10 days in silence, first observing one's breathing for three days, then exploring sensation in the body, as far as possible in a wordless state. Um, regardless of any other agenda then, this kind of meditation is simply an invitation to inhabit one's body. What does it mean, though, that the mind or the intention moves around the body, exploring sensation? The body is absolutely still, Yet within the three-dimensional stillness of limbs, head, trunk, you have the impression of the mind shifting, exploring, traveling up and down, left and right, as if with the body parts that are usually in movement, now firmly anchored, the mind can move at will. This is not the movement of the schoolboy's eye over diagrams of anatomy. It is not the movement of looking. Rather, it's like a man wandering through the rooms of a house in the dark, knocking on this door and that, perhaps after a long absence, checking if anyone is at home, if anybody wants to talk or gripe or rejoice or simply turn on a light for him. For a while, maybe, there'll be no response. The doors are closed, perhaps locked. You must be patient. Nobody has passed this way for some time. It would be impolite to start rattling the handles. This is not a police raid. I go to my forehead and my forehead doesn't respond. I go to my ears, they don't respond. But you have time. All at once, the temples. I remember distinctly my first session of Vipassana. It was in my temples that it began. First one, then the other, singing, buzzing, dancing. Had I wished to induce a sensation in this part of the body, I would never have imagined such mayhem, as though insect eggs had hatched or breath on ashes found a nest of live embers. But it wasn't creepy. It wasn't hot. It was the lively sparkle of freshly poured soda water in my temples. At this point, you realize that focusing the mind, eyes closed, on a part of the body is quite different 
from focusing on something outside yourself, a ball, say, or a bottle, or a boat. In that case, the object remains an object, however long we look at it. But like light through a lens, the mind sets the body alight, or the body the mind. It's hard to say which. The skin glows in the mind, and the mind fizzes in the skin. And together, neither flesh nor fleshless, or both flesh and fleshless, they burn. That is the beginning of Vipassana meditation. The body is all mind. The mind is all body. If I am my body then, what is my illness? Well, it's me. It's a change in me. It's an unwelcome alteration. Disease is unease. It is a state I am in and which I would wish not to be in. So perhaps antibiotics are the solution. Perhaps an operation is the solution. All the same, it might be as well to explore this pain to understand who I am now, now that I have this illness. I might want to ask myself how this illness fits with me, with the way I am living, with my emotional life, my work life, my eating habits. And the more I become familiar, intensely familiar, and I could never have imagined this before, before following this path for a while. The more I become familiar with sensation in my body, the more it becomes clear how much my word-driven ambitions and rather obsessive mental habits had tensed that body and encouraged the chronic condition I'd been experiencing. And the more it became possible, very slowly, to reverse that situation. The fact is that a shift in the paradigm towards I am my body will have very radical effects in every direction. More sentient, I'm more aware of what harms me and what is good for me. I am less willing to push myself, whether it be in some Spartan athletic performance or in marathons in front of the computer screen. My goals and ambitions begin to shift. I feel that I belong to the physical animal world around me rather than being separate from it, called out of it, as Christianity would have it, superior, superior to it. We will soon talk about materialism, and it seems to me that just the use of the word materialism comes out of our desire to pretend that we are not part of the material world, but in some other sphere. We want to be in some other sphere because we want to avoid the fate uh, that we know belongs to all animals and indeed more or less all man manifestations in the material world. Mutability, as we heard this morning. Mortality. I will die with this body. On the other hand, this can be reassuring. I am really here. This body really is here. I can take pleasure in it. To turn, in conclusion, to the unboxing of me medicine, my own feeling about this is extremely pessimistic. No amount of tinkering in approach, no amount of apparent openness to soft alternatives will make any profound difference as I see it, so long as the I am not my body paradigm prevails. If, for example, I try to use these meditative disciplines merely as tools to fix my body, and then once healed, go on ignoring it. If I pay lip service to the experience of being so I can get back to my obsession with doing, 
achieving, asserting myself, then no real profound change will occur. And this is why I think it's so hard, really, to shift the way medicine is practiced and experienced, because our whole society is irretrievably invested in a paradigm that denies the body individuality and real existence. Everything here is pointed towards achievement and very little towards the experience of mortal life. Thank you.